So Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13, starting in this section, uh, the armor of God. All right, before we read it and take a look at it, let's, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we uh, thank you, are thankful that you inform us that we're in a battle, that our souls are at stake, that there's real work to do and fights to fight. And so we ask as we uh, go through this passage in the coming weeks and months, as you are willing, that you would equip us for this fight and strengthen us for the battle by the strength which you alone can supply us. And we look to you for grace and uh, for all that we stand in need of by the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Ephesians uh, 6, let's just start at verse uh, 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Uh, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here this morning, uh, C.S. Lewis said in his screw tape letters something that uh, uh, I think a lot of people have found helpful regarding uh, our view of the devil. He said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. So it's possible to go through life not thinking much of the devil. I think maybe especially in our confessional churches it's possible to do this because we have very little in our confessions by way of teaching on the devil. We don't have a chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith entitled The Devil and His Demons or His Minions. So it's very possible we can go through life not thinking much about him and uh, thus uh, losing a lot of battles with him. It's also possible that we can go through our lives uh, 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 overestimating him and thus leading into tons of worry, tons of anxiety, and thinking nothing about, uh, nothing except the devil and what he can do to us. Um, I'm, I'm of the understanding that probably for us, we might tend to underestimate the devil and his work. And so uh, it is good for us to just pause for a while and consider how he works and uh, uh, how we can do battle against him. And I want us to look at uh, verses 10 through 13 um, uh, as, as Paul's way of telling us to stand firm in the faith. Uh, he's telling us to stand over and over in these verses, stand, that, that we, when we have, having done all, we can still stand. And he's calling us to stand firm. Uh, we could add the language of in the Lord or in the faith. Either way, he's calling us to stand in this Christian faith that we're part of. And I want us to notice three things that will help us to stand. Um, be strengthened, be equipped, and be courageous. So uh, when we're strengthened, we can stand. When we're equipped, we can stand. And when we're courageous, we can stand. I want to look at those things. First of all, uh, just uh, being strengthened. Uh, if you look at verse 10, he begins with the word finally, which <laughs> if you know um, uh, typical uh, preachers, especially Paul's a theologian, when he says finally, it doesn't mean he's even near the end yet. So he's got a ways to go. Uh, but he says finally, which is the conclusion of all the doctrine, all the teaching that, he's, that he said, he wants the last thing to be on the minds of the people this, that we're in a spiritual battle, that there's real spiritual warfare going on, and that if you're a Christian, you're in the battle, whether you realize it or not, that you're in a war, that you're, you're part of this battle. So he's impressing this upon our minds with his finally, and he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Now, something about this word be strong is interesting. It's in the passive, which means that he's not saying to us, uh, summon up all your internal strength that you have inside of you and go at this fight. He's saying, be strong. In other words, get strength from somewhere outside of you so that you have strength for this fight. And he clarifies that by saying, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So Paul's not leaving us to guess where it is we can get strength for this fight. He's saying there's strength in the Lord Jesus Christ for this spiritual battle. The strength is not in us. We can get strength from him, from being united with him. He's really the, the, the one who has all the energy and the power. And if we're going to do well in this battle, we need uh, outside resources from Christ to come in. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Bad Water 135. It's called the world's most difficult race. Um, I think it's run in California. And you actually ascend about 8,000 feet over the course of 135 miles. And uh, it's one race. And uh, people started and it takes like 20, 25 to 40 hours to finish this race. No one who starts that race has any uh, thought in their mind that says, I'm just going to load up on lasagna and pizza, drink about a gallon or two of water, and then I'll be good for the rest of the 135 miles. Nobody has that thought across their mind. There's food stations, water stations, support staff so they can duct tape your feet when they're all blistered and full up because of the heat. That's how you make it through the race, through outside resources. Beloved, it's so easy in our Christian life to think, the Lord saved me, I'm good now. I'm in a battle, but I can do this on my own. There, no Christian should ever have that thought that I can make it from here, uh, where I sit in the end of January 2020, to the end of my Christian race without any outside resources from the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no way we're going to be able to fight this battle unless He supplies us the strength of that we need. Now, be encouraged. The Lord is stronger than our opponents. That's why this is so imperative, beloved. The Lord is stronger than our opponents. If we were stronger than Satan, then Paul could use a different argument here. He could just say, summon up your own strength and you can do battle against Satan. You can take him out. But Paul knows something about the devil. The Holy Spirit knows something about what we're made of and what the devil's made of. He's wittier than we are, smarter than we are, and has more strength than we do in the spiritual realm. That's why he can come to Adam and Eve and trip him up. It didn't even take him that long, did it? Are you sure God said this? And soon enough, they're plunging right into sin. Satan is very powerful, beloved, but not more powerful than God. Satan is subject to God. The account with Job makes that crystal clear. Satan's coming before God and basically asking him permission. Can I do this? <laughs> and Satan can only do what God allows him to do. God sets boundaries on his limits and even through the work of Satan, God accomplishes his own purposes. So Satan is in every way subject uh, to the Lord. So we can be encouraged that with the strength of the Lord, we can actually fight this battle and, and be victorious in so many ways uh, in spiritual warfare. I was reminded this past week of that episode in the life of Elisha in 2 Kings 6, uh, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? <laughs> In other words, look, Elisha, we're cooked. <laughs> we're, we're done. And he said, Oh, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What this servant didn't understand was, Actually, God's more powerful than the enemy. Elisha understood it. Lord opened his eyes, and, and there, there, there it is. Way more people for Elisha and the servant than against them. 
something else that I want us to be encouraged by is not just that the Lord is stronger than our opponent, and so He can supply us the strength we need, but also that there is available much power from the Lord. He just has an endless supply of power to give us. If you look back in Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 19, we looked at this briefly in Paul's prayer. He prayed that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Now just stop for a moment. How much power does it take to raise somebody from the dead and seat them in the heavenly places? We have, a, we have a huge military, right? If you combine the military of the United States, Russia, and China all together, could they raise somebody from the dead? Could they seat somebody in the heavenly places? No. And yet Paul's saying, the Holy Spirit is saying, that we have, the, according to, the same kind of power that it took to raise Christ from the dead and seat Him. That's God's power toward us who believe. There's tremendous power available, beloved. Tremendous spiritual power available for each of us as Christians. Uh, William Gurnall, uh, in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor, uh, a great read, uh, said this, The strength of the general in other hosts lies in his troops. He flies, as a great commander once said to his soldiers, upon their wings. If their feathers be clipped, their power broken, the commander's lost. But in the army of the saints, uh, the strength of the saint lies in the Lord of hosts, God can overcome His enemies without their hands, but they cannot so much as defend themselves without His arm. In other words, you go to a regular army, that captain is only as good as his troops. If he doesn't have good troops, he's finished. But in the Christian military, it's different. We're only as good as our captain. But since our captain is so powerful, beloved, and has so much strength to give us and power available to give us through Christ, then we can indeed go into this battle and be victorious. We are as strong as our captain. Uh, something else that's encouraging, too, is that over 200 times in the Bible, the Lord's called the Lord of hosts. Another translation, Lord of armies. <laughs> the Lord of armies. You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was being betrayed, and he looked at Peter and said, look, put the sword away. Don't you know I've got 12 legions of angels? Uh, what, what's Jesus saying? There's so much power available. There are so many resources available in heaven to take out whatever evil there is in this world. But he's saying, I'm not going to draw on that now. But he's saying, there's so much available. They could even come and rescue me out of this situation if I wanted them to. But he's not calling upon that. Beloved, our Lord is the Lord of armies. Uh, Jesus Christ is the commander. You remember that uh, uh, passage in Joshua 6 where the commander of the Lord's army shows up and Joshua went up to him and said to him, are you for us or, against, or for our adversaries? He said, no. How do you like that response? <laughs> are you for us or are you, for, are you against us? Uh, nope. <laughs> Neither. But he said this, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua bowed down before him and worshipped him. Jesus showed up. If it was an angel, the angel would have said, don't worship me. If it was a human being, it would have said, don't worship me. But the commander of the Lord's army didn't say, don't worship me. He took the worship. It's Jesus Christ showing up pre-incarnate, as it were, saying, I'm the leader of this army. So, beloved, we need strength from the Lord. Our Lord rules over Satan. He has defeated Satan. Satan is subject to him. We are not as powerful as Satan. If we're going to do battle in this spiritual warfare well, we need the Lord's strength. Uh, something else I want us to notice is, is uh, being equipped. And we're equipped in a couple ways. Number one, we're equipped with armor, which we'll notice in weeks to come, Lord willing. We're also equipped with information regarding our opponents, which is helpful information. I want to just take a look uh, first at the armor 
Uh, because Paul mentions, you know, in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Uh, so that, that language of whole armor is actually one word, and it has to do with not just battle armament, but the whole range of it. Uh, what's being said is this. Uh, we need everything that Paul is going to lay out in order to do this battle. If all we needed was the sword of the Spirit, he would have just kept it at that. Or if we just needed one of these tools, he would have said, look, put on some of this armor. You don't need all of it. We're each weak in our different ways, but just, just pick one or two of these, uh, of these armors and you'll be fine. But he doesn't say that. He says, put on the whole thing. We need every single tool that he's going to be describing in order to do spiritual warfare. We need to put on all of this armor in order to fight uh, this good fight. Notice as well, it's the armor of God or the armor from God. This isn't just a willy-nilly uh, armor that was just kind of thrown together last minute. Well, we're about ready to fight. Grab what you can and run out. This is armor that's from God. He's the source of the armor. God is infinitely wise. Uh, we could well conclude that he knows exactly what we need in this battle. And so he's not weighing us down. You know, if you're a soldier in a field, you don't want to be weighed down with 300 pounds of gear, right? Your enemy will beat you, not because you're underarmed, but because you're overarmed. You can't move, can't run. You're tired just getting to the field of battle. As well, it's, it's horrible to be underarmed, to be in a gunfight running out of ammunition, or to be in a close combat and it moves from gunfight and not to have a bayonet or not to have a knife. You need so many tools in the field of battle and you need to be properly equipped depending on the nature of the fight. So all of this armor is from God. He's perfect in his wisdom. Obviously, whatever Paul is going to be telling us is exactly the armor we need. Not too much, but also not too little. We need all of it, but we need uh, nothing more. Before uh, the U.S. Special Ops went into Osama bin Laden's compound uh, and took him out, the CIA was uh, for years trying to locate him. And then they actually uh, did a lot of work, extensive work on the compound itself noticing even the side uh, of that the, the hinges were on the door, so they knew what side to breach and to blow up in order to get in the compound and operate in it. They knew where, where guards are placed. They, they pretty much had the whole thing staked out. No U.S. Special Forces op said, hey, I'm just going to scrap that plan and do my own thing. I don't trust you. They all said, no, I trust this. I trust your intelligence. You're wiser than I am. You just tell me what I got to do, lay it out, and I'll go do it. Love, it's, it, it, it can be easy for us sometimes as Christians to say, God's provided all this armor, but I don't need all of it. Love, if we're going to be in this fight, God is perfect in his wisdom and knowledge. He's given us this armor for use. He doesn't give us too much or too little. We need every bit of it. And so as we walk through it in the coming weeks, uh, I, just an encouragement for all of us to really take a look at the armor, what is, what is in this, this arsenal, uh, because uh, we need every bit of it in order to be successful. Uh, something else about um, uh, this, uh, uh, th th this fight is that we need to be equipped uh, uh, with knowledge, not just with armor, but also with knowledge. Um, when I was in high school, probably plenty of you have done this, our coaches would do film studies. We wouldn't be on it, it would take too much time, but they'd do film studies of the opposing basketball team. Uh, people still do that today from professional sports. You watch uh, films of other uh, basketball players, football players, wrestlers, whatever it is you're competing in, so that you can learn the opponent's weaknesses. You can learn their habits, their strategies. And so you're a better opponent, actually, when you learn their weaknesses. And when you get in the game, you know, oh, if, if, if they give this signal, they're going to do this. So I'm going to counter it with this. They have no idea how you came up with this strategy, 
but at the end of the day, you're more effective in your fighting against them and it's easier to beat them. Uh, we are equipped here uh, with a, a really a view of our opponents. Who is our opponent? How does he fight? God gives us this information, valuable information, if we're going to be uh, uh, effective in our spiritual warfare. So he starts off by saying, uh, who our enemies are not. Notice what he said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our opponents in this spiritual battle, the battle for our souls, the battle to keep the faith. Remember Paul, I fought the good fight, I run this race, I finished the race, I kept the faith. It's a battle to keep the faith, to run this race. In other words, we're going to make it to the end through blood, sweat, and tears. We're going to make it to the end through fighting, through running, through difficulty. Beloved, our battle, though, as we do this, is not against flesh and blood. Look, if I've said this before. If Satan were five foot two and 180 pounds, we could go up to him, knock him in the nose, and put a bullet in him somewhere, and the fight would be over. If he was the size of Goliath, we could just get a few more buddies and take him out, right? Easy enough. But the battle that we're in as Christians is not a battle against flesh and blood. We're not trying to beat up on people. We're not trying to start a, a, a battle where we've got swords loud clashing and roll of stirring drums and guns going at it and dropping atomic bombs. We're not trying to start that kind of battle that won't help us in this spiritual warfare. Now, sometimes we can fall into the, the pattern of thinking that our biggest enemies are people. Uh, sometimes we can look at the political realm and say, hey, our biggest enemy is that we have certain people uh, in office and we need to get others out. But again, that's, just, that's to mislocate, that's to, that's to locate the problem in the wrong sphere. Indeed, we have a call to, to be operating in the civil realm and to vote for people a certain way. That's all the case. But this is spiritual warfare Paul's talking about, the battle for our souls. Putting certain people in positions of power is not going to help us in our battle to keep the faith and to stand strong in the Lord. So who is our battle against? Not flesh and blood, but against uh, the devil. If you look at verse 11, he's calling us to stand against the schemes of the devil. So that's the first thing he mentions as far as our opponents go. And then he'll mention more in, in the later verse. So first, against the schemes of the devil. The word schemes is, is this. It's a predictable method used in organized evil doing, or it's well-crafted trickery. That's what it means to be to, to scheme. So when the devil comes at us, he's not coming at us at 5.30 in the morning. He got up at you know, 5.29 and said, well, I'm going to go after so-and-so today. I haven't really thought about how I'm going to do this. <laughs> but let's just give it a shot and see how it goes. Now, this is well-crafted trickery. This is the devil coming in to get to know us, to have schemed about how to take us down, and then do enact the plan, whether it's him or the other fallen angels and demons. Uh, they've thought about this plan and they're going about this. That's part of the, the wiles of the devil or the schemes of the devil. Uh, it's according to a well-thought-out plan. This is why Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 2.11, We would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The devil has designs. The devil has schemes that he uses. And Paul's saying, look, we don't want to be outwitted by him. We're not ignorant of how he works. We know how he works. The Bible teaches us how he works. We've got a good handle on this. By the way, kind of an offside, if you're more interested in how the devil works, not just in what the Bible teaches, but kind of an extrapolation of that, the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, very insightful. He must have had tremendous battles with Satan to be able to write something like that. Uh, he unfolds a lot of the schemes. So to be informed of the ways that the devil schemes is very helpful. What are some of his schemes? I want to just briefly look at that. Uh, one of his schemes is actually to disguise false teaching. 
Second uh, Corinthians eleven thirteen to fifteen uh, reads this: Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And then 1 Timothy 4.1 says something similar. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by, the, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Notice that. Uh, deceitful spirits and teaching of demons are pulling people away through the insincerity of liars. So the demons themselves aren't showing up. They're doing their work through false apostles, through people, through men who come and say, hey, I've got a teaching, listen to it. So Satan, one of his schemes is to use people as a disguise. Uh, these people can be winsome, convincing, uh, have great personalities, fun to be around, uh, very persuasive. And they can come right inside the church and win a lot of people over and start teaching false things. Uh, that's how Satan can, can disguise false teaching. He doesn't come in in the most ugly way uh, through really belligerent and horrible people and say, you got to believe this now, you know, trying to shove great stake down her throat. No, he comes in and says, ah, I'm going to make this as attractive as possible. I'm going to do it through somebody who everybody likes. And then through that person, we're actually going to turn the whole church south by injecting some false teaching. So he comes in disguise as an angel of light, as a false apostle, he comes in disguise, and then he brings horrible teachings into the church. It can be teachings as simple as like in Galatians, Jesus plus circumcision. Oh, we believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus Christ, yep, you're saved. Just do this circumcision thing too. Just, just, just add it to it. It can't hurt, right? For an extra safe measure. So that Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. Uh, or it can be through through other simple means where the gospel is just slightly turned around, as it were. Uh, these spies come in, they come in disguised well, they look like everybody else, and they say, yeah, this gospel's great. I just want you to do the gospel plus some really clean living, right? The, believe in Jesus, but then clean up your life really good. And if you don't have that cleaned up life, then you can't have any assurance that you're a Christian at all. So it's believe in Jesus plus this nice cleaned up living, and then you can be sure you're saved. Then, then, then you're saved, absolutely. Then you can be justified. We shouldn't be surprised that this is how Satan works, beloved. He did it with the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 22, 3. Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. Judas was among the disciples for a few years at this point. And yet he's acting as a spy almost, whether he knew it or not, acting as a spy. The disciples at the table didn't even know who it was. That's fascinating. They didn't even know who was going to betray the Lord. They're asking, who is it, Lord? And here we have Judas going to do this because Satan entered into him. Satan, beloved, uses people to draw us away from true teaching of the gospel. Jesus plus works, Jesus plus good decisions, Jesus plus anything, and then we've lost the gospel. But another scheme that Satan uses isn't just to infiltrate the church, like Paul would talk about with the Ephesian elders, from among you will arise wolves, not from outside the church, but from among the Ephesian church will come wolves. But the second scheme he can use is he catches us off guard. 1 Peter 5.8, Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. Now, this is the picture of a lion seeking prey. The predator is looking for prey, and the lion does not pick when the, when the, when the prey 
is the least vulnerable looking really strong. <laughs> the lion's looking for a point of weakness. Uh, the, the animal segregated away from the rest of the flock. The animal in a precarious position where the lion can run the animal down and go get it. The lion's looking for a position of weakness, the opportune time to go pounce on the prey and take it home for lunch. Satan loves weaknesses, beloved. He loves our weaknesses. He's walking around, prowling around, looking for someone to devour, looking for someone who's lagging behind, as it were, someone who has weaknesses, glaring weaknesses, those of us who have glaring weaknesses in our, in our personal lives, and he's just waiting to pick us off. This is a great reason, by the way, to be working on our weaknesses as Christians. We all have them. We all have weaknesses. We all have areas where Satan can get a foothold. He's looking for those moments when he can devour us. That's how he operates. He can also, thirdly, use our pride against us. First uh, Chronicles 21.1, remember David took the census. 70,000 people were wiped out. We're told in that verse, Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Satan moved in David's heart to get David to take a census of Israel so David could say, look how great of a king I am. Look how massive is my kingdom. Here's how many troops I have. Here's how many people I have in my kingdom. Joab actually tried to talk him out of it. David said, nope. Satan was behind it. And the effects, 70,000 people die under the plague of the Lord. So again, it's, it's a call, beloved. If God can use our strengths, the kingdom of David was strong. Satan used David's strength against him. David used the strong point of David's life actually against him, David's pride against him. If he can do that with David, he can do that with us. So just, just a thought here, if this is how Satan works, we're in, we're in spiritual danger if we could say, I could never commit blank, or I could never do blank. Uh, I would never fall this way. Whatever we put in that blank is actually a, a spot of pride that Satan knows and could very well use against us uh, to bring us down in this spiritual warfare. So again, one of, the, one of the things to be aware of is that Satan can use our greatest strengths actually against us. Uh, something else about his schemes is that he uses our sins against us. We're told in Revelation 12, 9 to 12 this, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So Satan actually can work against us in spiritual warfare by bringing tremendous discouragement. And here's how it can sometimes operate. You can't possibly be a child of God given the sins you committed before you came to Christ, right? But Paul, you were a murderer. You were insolent. Moses, look at what you did. David, look at you. Fill in your name. Look at what you did before you came to Christ. There's no way God can provide that abundant forgiveness. Here's another powerful thing he does in the lives of Christians, which might be most relevant to us. You've not just sinned against the law before you came to Christ. There's no way you could be a child of God. You've sinned against God's grace after you came to Christ. Look at the things you've done after you were born again. You came to Christ in such and such a time, whether you were five or 50. And then when you were six or 51, look at what you did. This is what Satan does, beloved, day and night, the accuser of the brothers, accusing us before the throne of God in our own consciences, saying there is no way that you can be a child of God. Oh, that plunges us into discouragement. We can almost want to give up the fight. We can want to say, yep, I guess that's it. 
And we sometimes will even put down the sword of the Spirit. We'll let go of the truth, which is in Christ we are forgiven. In Christ there is forgiveness for all of our sins. Jesus paid them all. In fact, we don't have just forgiveness. We have His righteousness to our account. Sometimes we can put down those weapons and then Satan can get a huge upper hand in our lives. So it's important if we're going to fight Satan in this way uh, to know uh, that, that he will accuse us. And beloved, I don't know what, what sins you might be wrestling. Maybe some of us say, I had a bad week or a bad month. I'm, I'm really wrestling with this. How can I be a child of God? Look, that's, that's, a, that's a design of Satan. It can be a tremendous design of Satan to convince you that you're not a child of God anymore, even though you are. And you've just got to know the gospel. We've, we've got to know the truth that in Christ, all of our sins forgiven, even the worst ones. Here's an amazing truth that God knew all of the worst of our sins before we committed them and he saved us in spite of them. He saved us before the foundations of the world. He knows us completely. God knows the sins we're going to commit between now and the day we die. And he said, I've got them all covered too. Amazing good news. So when Satan comes into our lives and starts accusing us, we can say, yeah, Satan, I'm glad you just discovered that. There's actually way worse sins and God knows them all. God knows them all and he paid for every single one of them. So the schemes of the devil are what we're up against. But we're also up against, if you take a look at verse 12, some other things. We're up against the rulers and up against the authorities. Now, this language is actually identical to the language Paul used back in Ephesians 1, verse 21, where he wrote this. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So what, what Paul is saying is one of two things. Either he's saying that Christ reigns above these rulers and authorities, or he's saying there's a heavenly realm where Christ is reigning over rulers and authorities, which are godly, and there's this wicked realm in the heavenlies, meaning somewhere out there, not in the throne room of God, but somewhere else in the spirit realm that we can't see, in the air, in the heavenlies, where Satan is ruling over his rulers and his authorities. There, there, there's that realm too. But either way, we know that we're, we're, we're given to understand Christ reigns over these. He reigns over them. But Satan has his realm of authority. He has rulers and he has authorities. He's called the prince of the power of the air. Satan in this world, prior to Christ coming again, has real authority and he has real power. We're told as well that we wrestle against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Again, this language isn't quite so general, but a little more specific. If we look at the world around us, uh, the world is called darkness. John, especially in his gospel, calls the world darkness. Darkness can have to do with ignorance. It can also just be resistance to God, uh, lost and fighting against God and his work. So what he's saying is that we rest against world powers or cosmic powers, which are reigning over this present darkness. Fascinating thought. So behind every human being, Behind all the darkness that we see in this world, there is whom? These cosmic powers that we're wrestling against. So we can start to think, oh, I'm wrestling against flesh and blood. And what Paul's saying is, no, look behind the backstory. Behind that person that might be your enemy. Behind that enemy of the truth. Behind that dictator or ruler who's just ruining uh, uh, the lives of his citizens and building mass graves. Behind him is somebody else. Something else. It's Satan and the cosmic powers, the fallen angels, his demons, they're behind this 
using people to do tremendously wicked things. So Satan actually has authority in this world to do many dark things presently, this present darkness, uh, and, and is uh, behind so much of what goes on. So beloved, it, this will uh, hopefully change our attitude toward people that we might view as our enemies. When, when we find difficulty in spreading the gospel or even much resistance among people, they're trying to ruin our faith or squash it or quelch it, uh, one great thing to, to, to be reminded of is there's actually power behind them. There's actually the devil behind them. You know, we can, we can beat them up and throw them in jail, that's fine, but that's not gonna solve this spiritual battle. They're in a battle. And if we're, going to do good, if we're going to do good in this battle, we need to wrestle against Satan. We need to pick up our tools and try and wrestle them out of that darkness into the light. Uh, he goes on to say uh, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Again, uh, we're, to, we're to understand that the heavenly places in some instances can describe God's throne room and where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. But here we can also understand heavenly places as in, in the air. There's not a physical place. They're, they're in the heavenly places. They're, they're in the heavenly realm, as it were, somewhere out there uh, under God's uh, control. So those are just quickly the opponents that we're up against. So we're in a fight. Uh, we have a definite call to engage the fight. Uh, these are our opponents. We have an opponent that is wily, scheming all the time, and is operative in the world in which we live standing behind many people, using many people to further his kingdom, to try and militate against the kingdom of God and doing the best that he can because he knows his time is short, Revelation. Satan knows his time is short. He doesn't have much longer to do this. And so he's like a person that sees the deadline trying to get everything they can done before the deadline, before that last timer goes ding and the, and the, and the clock is ticking, the clock is over. The third thing I want us to see then finally is we're called to be courageous. If you look at that verse 12, it says, we do not wrestle. That word wrestle is an interesting word. It has to do with really hand-to-hand -hand combat, uh, combat in close quarters. It can be used of even just two people wrestling it out, just hand-to-hand just -hand going at it, trying to get your, your knee or your arm or your elbow or your foot on their neck getting them in a place where they're in submission, where you can declare victory. Now, this word actually presents a little bit of difficulty for some people because it's not from the realm of military fights, which is where Paul's going to go in just a moment. He's saying, pick up the armor of God. We're thinking, oh, we're going to battle for a country. We're going to battle another country. We've got swords. We've got breastplates. We've got shoes. But what's this, what's this wrestling, grappling thing doing in here? I think one of the reasons, one of the things people look at and point out is that the the fighting is so intense and so personal. Paul wants to convey that. He's not, he's not trying to get our minds to go, oh, I'm in this spiritual battle, but I've got tons of soldiers with me, and I've got this massive platoon and battalion, and we can all do this together and take down the enemy. He uses this word wrestle, so before we go into the battle, we can start thinking this way. This is a fight that I need to do, and it's very personal and it's very close quarters. And we're surrounded by other soldiers in the church, absolutely, but they can't fight for me. They can't fight the good, we couldn't fight Paul's good fight of faith for him. He had to do it himself through the strength the Lord supplies, surrounded by God's people who are praying for him. But Paul has to be the one fighting. The same thing with us, beloved. 
This word connotes that the fighting is intense. The fighting is intense. When we're in the battle, it's not as though we're standing you know, uh, on our blueprint table looking at the battlefield saying, well, we could do this or that or this or that. No, it's hand-to-hand -hand combat. We're, we're locked in arms uh, with somebody who's trying to take us down and it's very difficult. The fighting is intense. Uh, because of this intensity, it's also deeply personal. The fighting is personal, beloved. Satan is trying to take not just an army down in general, but you and I personally. And because he's trying to take you and I down personally, learning our weaknesses, even using our strengths against us, he's studying us intensely. And so we do well to study him intensely. When you're in a personal uh, fight, I remember Cale Sanderson was at Iowa State when I was, I think he went 184 and 0 in his wrestling career at Iowa State. It's never been done before. He was there on the tail end of my time there. Uh, and one thing just fascinating about him is he knew his opponents really well. But it didn't matter how much people studied about him, they could never take him down. You could study him all day long <laughs> and he would find a way to beat you. But in the world of wrestling, you studied your opponent. You had to know them. It was so intense, you couldn't afford not to know their weaknesses and strengths because that's all you had. You weigh the same amount. How are you going to take down somebody who's as strong as you are equally, weighs the exact same amount as you, and has about the same length of arms and legs as you do? You have to, it's a mental battle. Beloved, in this fight, we've got to know Satan and his schemes. He knows us. If we're not doing any homework on him, rest assured he's doing tons of homework on us even if we're not doing it. He's looking at how he can take us down. That's part of what it is to be in a wrestling match, knowing our opponents well, and it's very personal. One of the biggest mistakes we can make then in the Christian life is to go through the, our life thinking the devil has no idea where we're weak and that he's not personally scheming to try and take each of us individually down. It's one of the most dangerous things we can do as we go through the Christian life, thinking uh, the, the devil, he's not really interested in taking me down. He's on lunch break. He's not coming after me. No, beloved, he's studying He's scheming. Maybe he's not coming full force now, but he will be soon. Uh, he's, he's trying to plan to do that. Uh, something else about this Christian life, because we wrestle, because this is a battle, uh, part of being a Christian is just the fact that we are engaged in a battle. Being a Christian means we have to face the enemy. There's no way around this. The moment we're born again, we are plunged into a battle. Now, we have conflict within ourselves, Galatians 5.17. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep us from doing the things we want to do. So there's an internal battle. But this battle that Paul's talking about is an external battle. It's outside of us, waged outside of us in many ways. Uh, it can also be waged inside of us. Satan can use our own flesh against us. But there's an outside force against us, Satan and his demons, that are coming against us and we have to engage the battle. I remember years ago when I was uh, severely depressed, being kicked around by Satan a lot, and I called up a friend, Chris Moulton, many of you know him, and uh, in the midst of it, I was just laying in the living room, curled up in a ball. Chris had had similar experiences, just a really great guy, solid in the Lord, and I said, what, what, how do, just, I need something. And he said, Zach, you're in a fight. You just engage the battle. Just engage. Satan's fighting, you, you, you gotta engage this. You, you gotta start fighting. You, you can't sit there and do nothing. And it was so helpful for me and beloved, sometimes we're in the middle of a fight and the call is really, Paul saying this, Holy Spirit saying, just pick up the sword, put on the belt, put on the shoes, grab that breastplate, go fight. You can't sit back and do nothing. You gotta fight this out. Well, this sin is really tempting to me now and I feel like I'm gonna fall, start fighting. Call some people up, 
pick up the Bible, start praying, Lord, I need strength for this. Well, I feel like this world is really tempting. There's certain parts of the world. Start fighting. Not, well, I'm just going to give in. That's not that big of a deal. No, it is a big deal. Fight. Engage in the battle. Beloved, we're wrestling in this battle, this spiritual warfare. God is on our side. We're going to make it. But as I said before, we're going to make it through blood. We're going to bleed spiritually. We're going to make it through sweat. It's going to take a lot of work. We're going to agonize. And through tears, there's going to be a lot of suffering and pain. People don't come through battles victorious looking like they started the battle. No, they're, they're battle proven. They're, 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 they're different on the other side of the battle. They're more resolved. They, they, they change. Beloved, the same thing is going to happen to us when we're in this battle. It's going to change us. It, it, it will exhaust us. It takes a lot out of us when we're really engaging the battle. Revelation 21.8 uh, says it pretty starkly. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, no liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. That first word always gets a lot of people. As for the cowardly, the people who won't engage. No, that's not Christians. Well, we're engaging. But notice this. There's a call to engage. We can't just cowardly sit beside and say, I'm not really going to fight Satan or the world or my flesh. I'm just going to willy-nilly go through life. That's just not an option for the Christian. We have actually have a, a, a real good call to engage. 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul puts it like this to Timothy. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of the faith. 2 Timothy 4.7, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith. None of us are getting to heaven without a fight. We got to be courageous, beloved. We're rustling. None of us is going to get to heaven without a fight. Or to use the language of William Gurnall, the fearful are among those that march for hell. The violent and valiant are they which take heaven by force. Cowards never won heaven. Now, this is not a call to say, hey, I'm going to summon up all my strength again. Remember where we began. Be strong in the Lord. He's the only one who can supply us strength. But understand this, beloved. You can't fight for me in my fight. I can't fight for you in your fight. And we can't fight for each other in each other's fights. We can encourage one another and pray for one another. But there's hand-to-hand -hand combat here that's really personal. And we've got to engage this fight. So, beloved, I have a fight and you have a fight. I'm going to be called to walk through things. So are you. So as every other believer, a born-again Christian all around the world, we each have our individual fights. The call is Russell. <laughs> engage. Pick up this stuff. Go to it. And let me just conclude with, with this. Jesus Christ fought the ultimate fight, and he, like we're called to do, he stood firm. Paul says over and over in this passage, stand firm, fight that you may stand, fight that you may stand, so at the very end you may be standing. <laughs> just in other words, don't budge an inch. <laughs> don't walk away from the faith. Don't walk away from the Lord. Stand firm all the way to the end. Jesus Christ came, and he stood firm. He stood firm against the devil. The devil comes. Jesus has gone 40 days without food. He comes and tempts him. And Jesus says, I've just, just get away from me when it's all done. Stands firm. No stones to bread, no jumping off the temple, nothing. Stands firm. Jesus Christ stood firm when the devil entered Judas, one of the 12, and betrayed him. Well, this is too much. One of my closest people just abandoned the faith. No, he stood firm. And he stood firm in the Garden of Gethsemane when the cup of wrath was put in front of his very eyes and he realized, I've got to drink this thing. 
This is going to be my undoing. And he stood firm, beloved. And he walked all the way through in the strength that the Spirit supplied him. And Jesus Christ stood firm, beloved, all the way through the cross. Stood firm in a mistrial. Stood firm when not just, not just Peter, but the other disciples left him as well. And he's hanging there all alone. And our Lord Jesus Christ stood there to take wrath you and I deserve to have taken, to undergo condemnation that we should have undergone, to go through hell where you and I should be so that we could receive eternal life. Now he's risen, he's ascended, he's interceding, and he's coming back soon. And he's on our side. He is for us. He says, you're mine. You're going to be victorious in this battle. In some ways you already are, but you still got to fight. The, the, the case is closed. You're going to win, but you're going to win by fighting. And you're going to win as you engage the battle. And you're going to make it to the end through a lot of pain and a lot of difficulty in fighting Satan. So, beloved, Christ is on our side. We have every reason to be encouraged as we take up this battle. Let, let's pray together.